And we encourage you to take out your Bible, if you would, and turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Twice a year I share a vision sermon, and this is the first one. We usually do it sometime in June or July for the second one. And um, I just encourage you especially to take out your notes. Many of you, we've gone over this many times, but it's good to refocus and simplify and bring us back to where we need to be. I don't know about you, but from time to time, I need a fresh focus on things. And uh, we encourage you today as we review and remind you and remember things that it'll spark something in your life as we consider uh, the truths of God's word, but also what Pleasant View Baptist Church is all about. In Matthew chapter 16, I encourage you to follow along as we read. Verses 13 through 16, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, but, do you, do, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word today. I believe the church is the hope of the world. I would even go so far to say it's the only hope for the world. And I think in 2021, our church and the church across the world is going to be very, very important and influential in many ways. I think we're going to need the church more than ever for each of our individual lives. And so this is a very, very important message as we think about it and kind of refocus and repurpose and make our commitment to gather together in the various ministries of our church. Martin Luther said this, where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. C.S. Lewis said, the perfect church service would be one we would almost be unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. D.L. Moody said, church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. A church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, Pauline Phillips said. So let's look first of all at the purpose of the local church at large, and then we'll look at ours. But I encourage you to take out your notes and look down there. This is not on the screen, but I want you to uh, follow along because we want to see, first of all, how the church is defined. The church is defined. And this is my definition. After many years of study, the church is a dynamic group of called out, the Greek word ekklesia, born again, baptized people who assemble together and go out individually to glorify God through worship, to fulfill the two ordinances of the church, to equip believers to grow and serve the Lord through their spiritual gifts, to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission with the goal of bringing people to a mature relationship in Jesus Christ. So that's the purpose. That is what a local church is to do, whether it's a small micro church over in Nepal like the Timothy Initiative is involved with, or a big mega church like Rick Warren's out in Saddleback that reaches 50,000 people in a weekend, according to their statistics, 
All these things are franchises of the same thing, the church that God has called out. And the church's purpose and function, second of all, we can look at many things, but I just want to highlight a few, and we could preach a sermon just on that definition, but what is the church's purpose and function? Well, number one, besides glorifying God as the ultimate, practical ways, evangelism, one-on-one conversations with people. When I was going to when I was a young Christian and then going to college back in the 70s, it was bus ministry. It was standing out at a shopping mall, handing out tracts. It was knocking on doors. Those things aren't as effective today. Not that you shouldn't do those things. But the thing now that really resonates is a relationship, is one-on-one discipleship with someone or one-on-one conversations where you get the opportunity to build trust and then to share the gospel with someone. And so one of the things I found very effective, even this week, as I talked to someone who I don't know is a believer or not, as they shared the burdens of their heart, just to pray with them on the phone. And that can open up spiritual conversations. And maybe that's the way that when people share, we could ask to pray for them. But I believe it's one-on-one conversations now that are most effective in sharing the gospel. Second of all, discipleship, connect group. Sunday school, Awana, men's group, Bible study fellowship, community Bible study for for people, all these things and others. They're ways to grow and to mature in the faith. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, and we'll be quoting these verses at the end of our service for the rest of this year as we go out. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The local church is instrumental and vital to the spiritual growth of its members. So evangelism, discipleship, and thirdly, church membership is so important. Now we can argue till the cows go home whether the Bible teaches church membership, but I think it's implied I think it's so important. Rick Warren said, a Christian without a church family is an orphan. Serving one another in community as well in the church is so important. We're all given spiritual gifts to share and to use with one another and the folks outside of our doors. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul said, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. When you receive Christ as Savior, you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And based on how God created you and your personality and those sorts of things, according to how God designed you, he gives you spiritual gifts to complement your personality and your natural talents. Each one of us in this room have a spiritual gift package that's unique to us. And we complement one another by working together. Because where I am weak, some of you are strong. And where I'm strong, some of you are weak. And when we work together in harmony and interdependence, positive things for God can happen. Several years ago, there were two students that graduated from Chicago-Kent College of Law. The highest-ranking student in the class was a blind man named Overton. And when he received his award, he insisted that he give a speech, and he gave half the credit to his friend, Kasprzyk. Kasprzyk, they'd met together 
as an armless man who was walking through the halls. And so when Kaepernick got to a stairwell, he needed someone to help him and to carry his books. And Overton was the blind guy, and he carried his books. And so they went to the common area for study, and while Overton brought the books, Kaepernick read to him so that they could study together. Talk about working together in interdependence. They actually decided to go practice law together after they graduated from law school. That's an example of what spiritual gifts can do in the church, how we need each other. And then also fulfilling the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The importance of us coming together to practice those things. And corporate worship, which is where we are today. <clears throat> we need the love, we need the care, we need the accountability, the sharing, the serving together that a church family brings in order for us to be balanced in our spiritual growth. Part of the DNA of a church is community and corporate worship for that reason. Now I'm thankful that we have live stream, we have the internet, we've spent a lot of money so far to uh, be able to do that and we're going to even be working this week and the weeks to come to even enhance what we're already doing. And we value live stream, we value that now in this COVID situation that people can view us online. But the ultimate goal is to gather back together, worshiping with one another and studying together as soon as we can. So let's look specifically at what our purpose and vision here is at Pleasant View Baptist Church. The purpose of our local church. The purpose of our local church. And you've got this in your notes there, but it'll be on the screen. The purpose statement. What is our purpose for gathering on Sunday mornings and throughout the week in our ministries? At Pleasant View Baptist Church, we believe according to God's word, our purpose in life is to worship and glorify God and to share the good news of God's love in Christ Jesus with the world, beginning with the people of our community. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will seek to lead people to conversion, to baptism, to a maturing relationship with Jesus Christ through worship, through outreach, through discipleship, through fellowship and service. That is our purpose. That's why we gather. And what's our vision? What, how do we look out to the community around us? And how do we look at uh, the people that gather here on a weekly basis? Pleasant View Baptist Church is a multi-generational family of believers in Jesus Christ, seeking to connect others to God and his family, striving to grow spiritually and relationally and finding our places of serving God in his church, in our communities, and in the world. It's connecting people with God and his family. It's growing spiritually and relationally. It's serving God in his church, in our communities, and in the world. And that's why we come all the way back down to the simple way to remember it is connecting, growing, and serving. Connecting, growing, and serving. That's our vision. The elders, as we gather and we evaluate ministries throughout the year, we try to decide through the lens of this vision statement. Is this accomplishing our vision for our church? And we evaluate and we make changes and we do things based on that. And that's why we have connect groups for the adults in Sunday school and for the kids is to connect with one another. And every Christ follower, I think we need to be consistent on how we can uh, grow in our faith. I really, truly believe that for a Christian 
to grow well and to be balanced in their spiritual diet. They need to get into God's word personally on a daily basis or at least numerous times of the week and spend time in prayer. But then I think it's important that you're committed to corporate worship, to gathering together here in church, that every believer should be in some kind of small group. We call them connect groups here, where you are accountable, you're building relationship, you share with one another, you pray with one another, you share life with one another. That's where real true discipleship happens. And then you're supposed to use those spiritual gifts that we talked about, that we pour out what God has given to us. I learn far more when I prepare to teach and preach than when I just read the Bible for myself. And I learn more when I give out to others and bounce those things and ideas off of others as I teach and I preach. And so as we use our spiritual gifts, we grow. God teaches us and we learn things that otherwise we wouldn't be able to do. And that brings balance to our Christian life. The danger is, some people want to get a lot of knowledge and hoard it. But God made us to be a sponge, to be squeezed out, using the knowledge that he's given us to pour out, to give to other people. And so I encourage you to seek balance in your life in those things. Sometimes it's difficult to be committed to all those things, but it brings balance to your growth and to be more like Christ. So how in this time of COVID-19 are we to carry out our purpose and our vision in 2021? Well, the next point is the process of executing our vision and purpose at Pleasant View Baptist Church in 2021. Understand, first of all, the times that we live in. That's so important. That's so important. It's easy to want to uh, just kind of stick our head in the sand with what's going on in our world around us and, and uh, shut everything off and just focus on our little world, and, and that's great. But at some point, you have to intersect with what's going on around us. So we have to be aware of the culture and society. Now the question is, to what extent? Well, it varies based on a lot of things. Maybe you're in a job situation where it's important to know what's going on in the economy and what's going on in the political world what's going on in the community for business purposes. Maybe just your personality, you want to find out these things so that when you engage people in conversation, like I do at the locker room at the Y or other places, you have something common to begin a conversation that could lead to a spiritual conversation. Maybe you have a purpose for knowing these things like we do at church to understand what is going on in our world and community. But we need to remind ourselves that we're not to be isolated from the world. That's not an option. And I'll be honest with you, after the November 3rd election, I decided to kind of turn off and dial down all that politi political rhetoric that was going on after the fact and focus in on the Christmas season. And now I'm playing a little bit of catch up, trying to see you know, what is really going on and how we should respond as, as spiritual leaders. But as pastor, I'm constantly reading and watching things to understand our country, our elected officials, and what actions they take that are going to influence us as believers and at our church. And we've talked many times this year about COVID-19 guidelines and the ethnic issues that started with the George Floyd incident. We talked about the community needs with the deratio and the political issues that are right before our eyes even today. You know, as I look at the world around us, I believe Satan has just unleashed himself even more public than 
ever before. We see opposing worldviews all around us, right, in broad daylight. Those that want to seek out the secular and remove uh, the miraculous things of the Bible and remove God and replace them with science, or we hold on to the truths that our country was founded upon. But we're to speak as believers to those things that violate scripture. When politicians, when laws are made, we are to stand up. And we're to stand on our convictions no matter how popular it makes us or not. I mean, we condemn all that went on with the rioting this summer after the George Floyd incident, but we also condemn what happened Wednesday at the Capitol as well. And I hope that all those people are brought to justice and are prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But let's put it this way. We need to know enough about what's going on to have good conversation with our neighbors in, the, in our neighborhood that we live in or where we work when these issues come up. These conversations, as I said, can lead us to opportunities to share the gospel and the hope that lies within us. But we also need, second of all, to understand and understand well who our enemy truly is. Who our enemy truly is. That's so important. We really, really need to be careful not to get so angry with people who hold different opinions or view things differently than we do. Social media right now is such a hot spot. Social media is being used to incite lots of negative things. So I encourage Christians to be careful how you use it and be careful what you're reading as well. As I mentioned, there's a class of worldviews going on. And neither of these sides are pure worldviews, but as I mentioned, some people in our country, they want to secularize and push God out of the equation and uh, just go back to where we just have a secular state. And then you've got those that believe in the Judeo-Christian ethic and believe in Christ and that he has value in the public square. And so we see the clash of these things going on. So the first step in defeating an opponent or solving an issue is to define the problem, to understand who the true enemy is. In Ephesians 6.12, we need to remind ourselves, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Too many Christians mischaracterize who Satan is. You know, as we think of the media, many times they uh, draw a picture of who Satan is with a red suit and a pitchfork. But if he actually came in to our room or came through a door somewhere, he probably or she probably, however he wants to present himself, would be dressed in wonderful attire, be very charismatic in the way they talked, and would be attractive to look at. Jesus and God are the authors and the purveyors of truth, and Satan is called by Jesus himself, the father of lies. In John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your devil, the father, or you are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and father of lies. So realize that behind people that you have issues with, their view of the world and what their agenda is that they're pushing, most of them have been blinded and unknowingly are doing the bidding of Satan. And we need to pray that the light of the gospel will invade their life and the gospel will burst forth into their hearts. 
Remember, Satan is merely an unwilling servant of God. Remember that. He's an unwilling servant of God. God only allows him to go so far. He's not all-knowing. He's not present everywhere. He's not all-powerful. But he does have a large contingent of fallen angels available to him for his beck and call. And remember, he targets Christians primarily. He doesn't have to spend a lot of time on those non-believers because he's already won them over. They're already a part of his kingdom. They're blinded in many ways. But he loves to divide and conquer people who are Christians. You've probably seen uh, National Geographic movies or whatever, uh, documentaries of a lion chasing after a group of gazelles, a herd of gazelle. And you know, gazelles are some of the fastest animals on the planet. And so what does the lion do? He looks for the weak one. He looks for the young one. And he gets himself between the herd and that one gazelle. So he can capture it and devour it. And that's what Satan wants to do and is doing very effectively even in our Christian world. Pride is another one of the big ones that he uses. Discouragement, isolation. These are some of the things that Satan is using to uh, harm those and target Christians to pull them away from their focus on Christ. Satan is crafty. He knows the areas of our weaknesses of our lives. He knows our vulnerabilities. He can bring things into your life that he handcrafts for your situation. I don't know if you've experienced that, but there's times that I just think, Satan, you are, you know, it's just perfect how you put this thing together and how I'm going to respond and make me aware of what I should do, dear God, as I face this situation. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist the devil. Stay firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're not alone. Christians all over the world are facing the same things, just different ways, different means. Just remember that Satan has an expiration date. And he's thrashing around in public more than ever because he knows his time is to draw near, or his time to end is drawing near. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is where Satan will spend eternity. Keep that in mind. You know, in football and basketball and baseball and some team sports, what does a team do before they face an opponent? Many teams sit down and they look at video and they look at the tendencies of their opponent and they look at their weaknesses in their offense or their defense and they look for their vulnerabilities. And then they design a game plan to attack that very thing. And that's exactly what Satan likes to do. So we need to have a solid understanding of who he is and how we view people who are under his spell. We need to show compassion and pray for them that they will see the truth found in God and his word. Jesus, through the power of his resurrection, enables us to resist the devil, to flee from him, and to overcome any power that he tries to exhibit over us. And then another thing that we need to know as we move into 2021 as a church, understand how to build a good defense and execute it against the enemy. Understand how to build a good defense and how to execute it against Satan who wants to thwart the good things 
that we want to do. In Ephesians chapter 6, please take your Bible and turn over there. Very familiar passage of scripture, but I want at the beginning of this year to encourage you to maybe even memorize this section of scripture, to pray on the armor of God on a daily basis. But look at it, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, as he concludes this wonderful book, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, as we said before, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as your shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Notice that word all. In verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or praying for all the saints. Notice some interesting things about this armor. We read in Matthew 16 how the church should be challenging or pushing back the gates of hell. The armor here is that of being on the offensive. You notice there's nothing for the backside because as Christians, we're never to retreat. We're never to turn our back on the enemy. And figuratively speaking, we should mentally and prayerfully put this armor on at the beginning of each day and ask God to help us to be sensitive to <clears throat> the opportunities that Satan will send our way with temptations to sin, to be able to extinguish those fiery darts that are coming at us. And we do that because we put on the armor. We plead the blood of Christ. We resist Satan. We resist the flesh. And so we need each other in this battle. As he says in verse 18, pray for one another. We're not in this alone, but we're standing next to each other fighting this battle for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Pray for one another. Researchers have studied veterans from the war in Afghanistan who've had trouble readjusting upon returning home. Many face depression, substance abuse, and many even think about Suicide. <clears throat> Often when questioned, they express a desire to return to the war. But that's not because they were fervent believers in the war's purpose. Instead, they missed deeply their belonging to their platoon. They were bound together with others in a commitment so strong that one's life could be sacrificed for another's, gave their life a compelling purpose for being on this earth. Moreover, this came through participating in that shared mission together. But back in the United States, for those finding adjustment difficult, life seemed to offer nothing comparable. They missed and even longed for the bonds of their platoon in ways hard to rationally understand. There's something that binds people together when you're facing an enemy and you see the war in front of you and you're participating with one another. We need each other in this combat against Satan. And we're stronger and we're better together. Satan is eating our lunch right now in the Christian world here in America. There's so many, week after week, I read of 
Christian leaders, more than ever, who are leaving the ministry, some because of moral failure, mainly because of um, discouragement, because of COVID-19 and the stress of ministry. Other Christian leaders are unwilling to hold true to the inerrant, inspired word of God when they're interviewed by the secular media. They want to be accepted by the culture, so they'll move away from believing in the supernatural and miracles or taking a stand on abortion or gender issues that are before us, destroying so many lives. And that's where we see Satan dividing and conquering. I read this week, uh, Reverend Kerry Jackson went to Union Theological Seminary, which is probably the most liberal seminary in our country in New York City. And uh, <clears throat> this person is an activist for the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. And Reverend Jackson said there's no contradiction in supporting abortion rights while maintaining a Christian faith. Think about that. Think about what seed is being planted with that thought. Then you go further and you read this week about Reverend Warnock who just won the Senate seat in Georgia that was uh, occupied by Kelly Loeffler. Reverend Warnock, according to Jack Jenkins, by being consistent through the years, even as he's running for elected office about his stance for reproductive freedom, is really creating an opportunity to shift the public narrative. Religious people can be pro-choice. So you see how they're dividing, they're conquering, they're causing us to think about where do we stand on these things. A Christian author, he, cl he claims to be a Christian, uh, works for the New York Times and in interviewed several uh, Christian people and at Christmas time, and he's doubting some of the essential things of the, of the uh, doctrines of faith. And he asked several of these men what they thought of the virgin birth. And Jim Wallace, who's a very left-wing um, follower of Christ, writes Sojourners uh, magazine. And Jimmy Carter, they would not answer the question, was Jesus virgin born? They would not answer that question. But Tim Keller, pastor and Christian author, was very clear on his affirmation of the virgin birth of Jesus. So cancel culture is all around us. People are going to at some point ask you or I, what is our view of abortion? What is our view of LBGTQ plus uh, uh, situations or, or, or gender issues or transgenderism? It may be the deciding factor for some getting a job or even possibly losing a job. So as leaders of this church, we're responsible for the shepherding and the equipping of our church family. And with um, Aaron and Mike and Dale, we are constantly in conversations at our meetings about how do we respond to some of these things and the culture around us. We're working on a response, for example, to the ethnic or ethnicity issues, prejudice, which is condemned in James chapter 2 and other places in the Bible. But the Bible teaches essentially that everyone is made in God's image. Everyone is supposed to be treated with dignity and respect because... They are made in God's image. And we celebrate the diversity among people groups. God gave us diversity to enjoy and complement one another. So that's a, a basic, simple response to a very complicated question with more to come. But don't let us get divided over things. It's easy for us even among ourselves to get divided over the COVID-19. We got some that don't think masks are necessary, others that do quarantine versus herd immunity, and on and on. But we're thankful we can come around these guidelines and support these things. Let's not be divided over politics. We see the rule of law being challenged every day. 
we see experience is truth and not logic. The battle of should Americans be personally responsible to take care of their needs for themselves or should the state take over and take care of us from the cradle to the grave. We need Christian responses to these and other moral issues such as artificial intelligence. I hope that if you haven't already that you go to Netflix and watch Social Dilemma. Social Dilemma to show you what the inside of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and some of these other organizations and their moral decisions. I think of bioethics. I was reading an article this week how in some part of the world they're taking and trying to clone human genes with pig genes in order to create a species that could provide the, the transplant of organs because there's a shortage of organs to provide a way to harvest organs for human beings. All these things are going on and how do we deal with, with them? And we need as parents and church leaders to teach discernment to our children and grandchildren with critical thinking from a God, godly perspective. So we're not looking for a confrontation, but we must not run from it either. We must be ready to give an answer to the faith that lies in our hearts. Our last point as to how we're to practically live out our vision in 2021 is this. Understand how to engage the world with the gospel and word and deed. Understand how to engage the world with the gospel and word and deed. With the knowledge and understanding of the previous points, we must go out in our daily lives and prayerfully ask God to bring people into our lives to love on, to build a relationship with, to build trust with so we can share the gospel. Now we need to be careful. We're not looking at people as projects. We love them for who they are. We love them if they never receive Christ. We build relationship with them because they're worthy of that because they're made in God's image. But obviously an opportunity to share the truth is an important part of a relationship that we would have. Theodore Roosevelt said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've heard that many times. But it's a good reminder that you know, they want to know us. They want to see us. They want to share a little bit of life with us as we have opportunity to pour into them eternal truths. In Jude chapter 1, in Jude chapter 1, Jude has one chapter, but it's a great little book, verses 20 and 21, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He starts out there in these two verses to say, prepare yourself. Make sure you're strong in the faith. Know who you are. Know whose you are. Know in whose power you're going out into the world. He's saying be ready to face difficulties. Understand that you're walking point for the heavenly king. But then he says in verses 22 and 23, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You and I were to have an attitude of humility. We need to look at it this way there, but for the grace of God, go I. I think about that a lot in my life. Where would I be without Jesus Christ? Wouldn't I be like some of these people that I'm connecting with in wherever way? Don't avoid the difficult questions, but lovingly share from a positive perspective what God says in his word. 
Too many times we're trying to defend something, but we need to be speaking what God is for. God is for life. God is for godly marriage and why that's important. And all these things that we could share. God is for a lot of things. We're to be sure that we don't fall into the influence of the world as we reach out to the lost. We must know our position in Christ and not be easily swayed by it. He said, be careful, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We don't want to fall in to the trap as we try to influence others to be caught up in it as well. Persecution is coming, and the problem is, for most of us, is that we're not prepared because we don't think it's at our doorstep. But I think very soon it's going to be at our doorstep, and uh, we're going to experience some of that cancel culture and other things ourselves. So after we finish the book of Genesis by Easter, um, we're going to talk a couple of weeks on heaven and what heaven is. And then we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, as we talk about the purpose of trials in our life and tribulations. And then we'll spend the rest of our year, and probably not finish, but in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, as we learn how to not just survive in the midst of persecution, but how to thrive in it, how to live as Christ would want us to do. So our key thought today is this, the church is fireproof and is the ultimate hope of the world. Remember, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God has a plan. He's carrying on his kingdom work in small churches and medium-sized churches and big churches all over the world. The church is fireproof and is the ultimate hope of the world. So instead of three questions today, I'm going to give you eight things very quickly as we close to just encourage you, to just to, to, to give you some uh, boost your morale as we think about who we are and the promise, the promises that God has given to overcome. These are all found in the book of Revelation. And I found it interesting. Uh, I'm reading through a book, The Overcoming Life by D.L. Moody, uh, one of the last books he wrote before he died. And he points to these eight promises. First of all, the ability to eat of the tree of life. Think about it. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to be able to eat from what was probably the very same tree or type of tree that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. It's now in Revelation 22 in heaven. He says in Revelation 2:7, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Think about that. We will be able to eat of the eternal tree of life. Second of all, the ability to not fear death. The ability to not fear death. Revelation 2.11 says, he who, has an hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I think it was com comedian Woody Allen who says, it's not death I'm worried about, it's just that I don't want to show up for it, Right? You know, we may wonder and be nervous about passing from this life and death, but we'll be ushered in on the other side to glory beyond understanding. I love Yogi Berra. He was a famous catcher for the New York Yankees, but he had his Yogi Berraisms, and he said this, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. <laughs> Think about that. Thirdly, the ability to have God feed me and give me a new name. The ability of God feed me and give me a new name. Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That hidden manna from the Bible talks about the food that Jesus has to give to us as believers, to feed us spiritually. We're in Matthew 6, in the, the Lord's Prayer, give us daily our daily bread. He wants to feed us and help us spiritually. But the white stone at the time of the book of Revelation was written, it was equivalent to being in a trial. And on the judge's desk were two stones, a white stone and a black stone. And if you were innocent, he picked up the white stone and said, you are completely innocent, acquitted of all charges. The black stone signified guilt and condemnation. He says there in Revelation 2.17, you'll have hidden manna and be given a white stone. That you and I, if we have a rock-solid hard faith and we stand true against the, the temptations of this world that we will be looked upon with this same hard-fought faith by giving us a reward. It's based on overcoming battles with temptations and enduring sufferings. Number four, another thing that the conquering faith will bring is the ability to rule over nations. To rule over nations. In Revelation 2, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Based on how we deal with uh, areas of authority and how we work with those that are under our authority. It looks like God's going to reward us and allow us to rule over nations, whatever that looks like in the millennium and then in the new heaven and the new earth. D.L. Moody said, a man who can rule himself is a man that God can trust with power. If we can rule ourselves, if we can uh, have self-control and discipline when we face temptation, he will trust us with power over others. Number five, the ability to be clothed in righteous and in the book of life. The ability to be clothed in his righteousness. Revelation 3, 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Think about it. all the stain of sin will be gone, and we will be pure just as Jesus is pure. And we get to inherit a place with our name on it in heaven. Number six, the ability to be a pillar for God's temple. You know, a pillar is something that's used for a strong piece of foundation to strengthen the structure. And we are going to be pillars in God's temple. In Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He will write a new name for us on that pillar. And then seven, the ability to sit on God's throne. Think about that. This is what he says. In Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's hard to imagine that we'll be lifted higher than the angels, than the archangels, than the seraphims and the cherubims. And we'll be able to be right there, right next to God 
all the way to his throne. And lastly, another thing to remember as we go through difficulties in our life and we face persecution, number eight, the ability to be God's child and to inherit all things. Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. God calls you and I, if we receive Christ as Savior, to be children of God. It says in John 1.12 that as many as believed on his name, he will become a child of God. What an amazing thought. And then he says in Romans chapter 8 that we're going to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You know, everything Jesus has, we're going to be able to have access to. That's what co-heir means. And so it's so worth it, whatever we endure in this life. Because when we see Christ and we're transformed to be like him, all the things of this world, the problems, the bills, the things we leave behind, I believe 30 seconds in heaven will leave all those things behind because of the great reward that's prepared for us because we are overcomers. And as we go into this new year, let us be reminded of that truth that we truly are conquerors. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the vision you've given this church. We thank you for the positive connections we've had in our community. We thank you for the many people that have come through these doors that we've been able to disciple and continue to disciple. We thank you for all aspects of this church. I thank you for so many faithful people who pour their time and their talents and treasure into not this building, but this organism that we know as the church, into people's lives, into pouring into them eternal values. As I think about those impressionable kids every Wednesday night at Awana, and our kids down in children's church and Sunday school to follow, and then I think about adults who are uh, new in the faith or been around for a while and are growing even more. Lord, it's hard to put a price tag on those things. It's hard for us to understand, but we're thankful that we can be a part of this. And Lord, help us as we face discouragement at times, whenever we face difficulties, help us to be reminded that we're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul told us in Romans. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.